Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome, welcome, friends, to the show where we bring the behind the scenes to the forefront. And and that is what we are doing today. Welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And let's get right to it. Let's bring in our extra special guest uh, for this week's episode. Uh, Thank you once again to our friend, uh, Michael Klug, but he, uh, for putting us in touch with this, uh, with this gentleman. And uh, we are pleased to welcome Charles De Lazarica. Is he there? There, there he is. is. There he is. <laughs> did you hear your applause? <laughs> I did. I heard the. I heard the applause. Okay. I heard the ninety uh, percent correct pronunciation of my name. So thank you. Oh, I was so close. It, it wasn't. It wasn't the pronunciation. It was the confidence. You didn't have the confidence. So. Oh no, you're well. It's because I was trying to click on admit, and I was like, "Why isn't he here?" I was trying to time it correctly. <laughs> your your headshot threw him off. It, you have a sort of intimidating yeah. gaze in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> that, that explains a lot of the failures of my life. Is my intimidating gaze? People don't want to look at me. So yeah, a few weeks back, we're doing a, a deep dive on the basically the the Ripley Alien movies. We didn't go into every single one, but we did those four, the quality trilogy as they're called. Um, and our buddy um, Michael, while I was saying, you know, first of all, if you're into these movies, you have this is you have to see these. And I sort of thought this up on the spot, so I really butchered your name. I mean, I didn't even really get much of a name out, but. I knew who you were, and I loved those docs, and I just really wanted our audience, if they love the Aliens films, because, you know, you do Michael Mann, top ten Michael Mann films, and we get a certain amount of hits. You stick Alien on it, and it gets a lot of excitement, because of nerds, we think. Yeah. Um, and Michael's like, ooh, I know him. <laughs> so yeah, I said oh, it, pretty, I guess I said it good enough that at least he recognized who I was talking about, and that he was acquainted with you, which, thank goodness. Yeah. Because here we are, we're sitting amongst just uh, one of the leading, certainly in the digital era, the leading uh, film documentarian in existence, in my opinion, and a guy who's got a man of many talents, who's made a feature film and has a short film that's, as he says, wrapping up the festival circuit right now. and we're just uh, super honored to have you here, man. I'm a really, really big fan. I will try and remain authentic and not get too <laughs> too dorky yeah. over you. But I'm well, really, I, really I excited it. to be in your presence. So I wanted well, our audience to know that in case I start acting weird. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation. And it's, uh, 
it's nice to spend a, a Saturday afternoon talking movies, you know, so yeah, it's great. For sure. Happy to do it. So uh, first things first, just so folks know where you are and how you came to this, you're a, a big, you know, a big part of when you look at your filmography and your works is uh, your work with Scott Free and Ridley Scott in particular. Um, you were before you started documenting behind the scenes work for him and doing these archival projects for for Ridley. You were working for him in some other capacity, and and it sort of evolved. Is that what I understand? Yeah, I actually, I started with Tony Scott. Actually, uh, I started as a as an intern. I was at USC Film School, and uh, you know, most of the smart film students there were were you know aware enough to say, you know, we're gonna be graduating soon when we need to find work, we need to make money, we need to do stuff. So, um, so I started interning like crazy. I went, I mean, I interned at like a few different companies and tried to expand the network and try to get experience and just try to get out there. And, um, and I did it at a few different companies, but the one that I seemed to really lock in with was, was Scott Free, as you mentioned. And uh, I began as, a, as an intern for Tony Scott. And then that evolved into me reading scripts for Tony and that evolved into me being his preferred reader. And then somewhere along the lines, Ridley had read some of my script coverage for Tony and then suddenly wanted me to read for him. So I started reading scripts for Ridley. And then that evolved uh, over time and I started working more and more in development. I would like to story notes on uh, projects that were you know, being actively developed for pre-production, um, such as like I Am Legend, I, I, on his Ridley's version of I Am Legend, I did tons of notes on, on that one. So that was, an interesting experience to have but um you know around that time was when dvd started warming up and um i had heard uh through the digital bits that fox was preparing the first box set the alien legacy box set of the first of the first four movies for dvd and at the time fox was not exactly this the the dvd friendliest studio out there they, they eventually became that very much so but those early days you know the studios were kind of involved in this sort of format war between DVD and DivX and everyone's trying to figure out what the next step is going to be. So in any case, um, I encourage Ridley to get involved because, you know, Alien is one of his crown jewel movies. Sure. And uh, I thought he should, you know, at least let them know that he was interested in how his film was being presented. So anyway, that, that began this whole process. And finally, I, I was I kind of briefed him on what DVD was and kind of how it worked and the interactivity of it and the extras and all that stuff. And he was leaving to go shoot Gladiator and he just asked me if I would, you know, sort of be in charge of this for him while he was gone. And I said, sure. <laughs> it was like, it was like, so like random. I'm like, okay, yeah, why not? And that, that began, you know, years and years and years of the, of the, the DVD and Blu-ray racket. And, can, you, uh, can you, not to go backwards too far, but can you, for our audience, can you explain quickly firsthand what a script writer reader is? Well, so it is what it it sounds like it is, but just for people oh, yeah, no, who kind of don't aren't familiar with the, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. it's a little bit more than just reading a script and going, yeah, right. yeah, that's good, that's yeah. good, thanks. It, it's a little bit more, not much more. more. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, you know, agents. You have to understand this is in the '90s. Right. There was a slightly different landscape back then. If you can imagine, like Robert Robert Altman's The Player, mm -hmm. it's more like that, like that world, right? <laughs> Uh, it's evolved or it hasn't evolved evolved is the wrong term but it's definitely transformed into something else i think these days but in any case you had agents trying to get their scripts or their, their their clients their writer clients try to get their scripts 
uh, attached with directors or actors or studios or whatever. So in this case, uh, you know, just tons of scripts would be coming in to try to get Ridley or Tony attached as a director. So they don't have the time to read those scripts all day long. So they have like a front line of readers. And then that'll, if a reader likes something, that'll get passed on to someone else, usually a junior executive of some kind, a development executive, uh, or depending if it's like something really hot, like we got to jump on this because, you know, other people are going to go after it, then it might go directly to like the head of the company or Ridley or Tony. So that's the process. So basically you get a script, you read it, you try to analyze it as best you can. You write a synopsis, like a one page synopsis or so. Uh, first you do a log line, which is like the movie encapsulated in a sentence or two. Then you do a, a synopsis. Then you do your, your critique of it, your, your review. Like, why is it good? Why is it not good? You try to be as specific as you can so that when the coverage gets passed on to the person's intended for, that person has a, a better understanding and they can actually talk to the agent or even the writer and say, here's why uh, it doesn't work for us. Here's maybe what you might consider changing. Here's why we like it. You know, just that type of like intel so that they can have a, a, a meaningful conversation without having to actually read 100 scripts a week. You know, so it's kind of like that. It's basically just a, a filtering process. And everyone does it. It's like it's not it's not something that's like unusual. Every every single company and filmmaker and actor and agent and basically anyone in the business, they, they if, if you have like an, a company or an operation, like a serious operation of any kind, you have readers. Right. Cool. Did you ever read anything that turned into a movie? Yeah, Beautiful That's Girls, actually. Beautiful cool. Girls, I, I read, I liked a lot, and I recommended it, and, uh, and it didn't it didn't get, you know, all the way up the chain, but uh, I remember reading that thinking, that's a really good script, and that's going to get made, and it, and it did get made. Um, most of the other ones I read that I really loved did not get made, but like a form of them sort of got made, or some, sure. you know, some kind of morph, mutation, whatever, of that script became something else. Yeah, but, something, something that moved its way through the Hollywood conveyor belt and turned into correct. something different. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you're working on uh, Alien Legacy. When did it change? When did it turn from you were, you know, supervising this with Ridley to you were doing long form, you know, feature length documentaries and extras for the entire series? Well, you know, there's there's some stuff in between. So basically, the Legacy box that came out, in which I was really just supervising that one, and then um, I worked on uh, Gladiator and. Hannibal, no, it was Gladiator and Legend, kind of like around the same time. Again, in a supervisory capacity, mm -hmm. because those discs had already other, other producers involved, like Jam Kenny made the Legend documentary. So I was which is, basically which is there. Which great work like, for people who, you know. Yeah, no, Jam did a wonderful job. And, and actually, I really credit JM for like bringing me into the, the fold and teaching me the DVD producing process quite a bit. So I got to kind of shadow him and learn a lot from JM. And, um, so I'd be there for like the commentary with Ridley or I would just sort of like, you know, we, we would kind of brainstorm on some things while he was making the documentary. I was focused on, can we find the director's cut? Cause the director's cut was lost for qu quite a period of time. And when I say lost, it wasn't like literally lost. It was just, we couldn't figure out, you know, where it was, what's the right cut, what condition is it in? For legend you're talking about? It's for legend. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in any case, that was like the, the, the educational process for me was to learn how this all, how these things come together, what's the process with the studio. And so I worked on Legend, I worked on Gladiator uh, with Mark Atkinson at DreamWorks. And then um, and then Hannibal came up and I, and I met with the folks at MGM and I said, you know, I think I, I, think I got this now. I think I can do it myself, uh, if that's okay. 
And they're like, well, we'd like to have a, an established producer do it, but you can still, you know, supervise it. Oh, okay, fine. And, uh, and this, I'll probably say the story from my memoirs, but there, something happened on, on Hannibal that opened up a, an opportunity for me to take over as the producer of that project. So I, I, <laughs> I did, and, and, and I, have, I have Anthony Hopkins to thank for it actually, but uh, so basically um, I became the solo producer on Hannibal on the, on the DVD for that. And that was the first time I got to work on like a full document, of documentary and all the extras, yep. the deleted scenes, the multi-angle breakdowns and, and whatnot. So that was a that big, point, very cool two disc set back in the, I remember in the DVD era. And then the Blu-ray came out and they just excised all that. Oh, did that far, I thought I thought the um, the, the Kino version had most. It does. Of the it has it all back, but it just okay. there was a you know, a ten year period there where, oh, right. yeah. which is sort of a bummer. But right. yeah, no, don't. But it, it is out there. Kino has a four K disc of Hannibal. If you're a Hannibal Lecter fan, and uh, and a Blu Ray, and it, it does have all of that great making of stuff. It was a really good set in its time. Well, it's my understanding that the, the multi-angle content that I worked on for Hannibal or Speed or um, even even Alien, um, I believe those don't tr translate to the, the Blu-ray spec. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not sure I've seen it in action. Uh, if you know how they deal with it, sometimes I think they just put up the the four you know kind of quad angle of a of a four angle you know mm -hmm. bit of content. But in any case, so yeah, that was the beginning of of that process for me to like start producing on my own and. Um, Around 2001 or 2002, um, Sven Davison, who worked at Fox at the time, uh, asked me, you know, Fox had this five-star collection line that I had produced the, uh, the content for Speed for the, for the five-star collection of that, which was a lot of fun to do. Um, and so, they, so Sven was like, you know, we'd like to do a five-star of Alien, like a two-disc set. So it'd be the feature with the commentaries and then bonus features. And I'm like, well... That's cool. Um, I feel like Alien's been done. It's like there's been so much done on Alien already. Do we really need to do Alien? I said, how about Alien 3? Because that one has not been done. There's there's a lost cut of that out there somewhere. There's really been no behind the scenes, like meaningful, like deep dive behind the scenes on Alien 3. And it has an amazing story about the, the traumatic journey that film took right. you know, from, from script to screen. I thought that's, that's the juicy story is, is that one. So they're like, yeah, well, maybe. But let's talk about Alien. So anyway, that conversation literally went on for about a year or so, where Sven would call up like every six months. How about Alien Three Five? Or how about Alien Five Star? And I say, how about Alien Three Five Star? And mm -hmm. um, and then finally one day, one amazing day, he called and he said, "So Alien Five Star Collection." I said, "Yeah." How about Alien Three? He said, "How about you do all four? And I was like, <laughs> "You know," I was like, be, be, "Be careful what you wish for," you know. So um, <laughs> so that began like a like a year and a half, I think, of not just the documentary content because we, you know, I decided let's, let's start fresh. Let's just do, let's approach the documentaries on this um, across all four is almost like a, a tapestry basically of, 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 of documentary content that just sort of like, we can, we can interview certain people about all four movies. We can interview some people like, like for instance, I love in the alien three documentary, the interview with Michael Bean. Yeah. Because me too. We talked about that in the show. Yeah, I, I, I listened to that actually just before this began, just to, to, to you know get to speed. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you're you're wrong about some stuff, so I'll talk. We'll talk about that at some point. Ah, but, okay. Well, <laughs> at the end of this segment, we, we, yeah. we can definitely do that. <laughs> um, but but anyway, so that just sort of began this this process of like, okay, let's look at the whole four movie saga, right? 
Yeah. Uh, I did not come up with quadrilogy, by the way. Someone else did. Um, <laughs> and, and that was, and, and every, everyone in my office were like, what the hell is quadrilogy? What, what does that even mean? Um, so, so when the Blu-ray came, I'm jumping ahead, but when the Blu-ray came up, yep. you know, I begged Fox, I said, can we call it anthology? Because that feels a little bit more, you know, and they said, yeah. yep, no problem. So we switched yeah. to anthology for the, for the Blu-ray set. And it was good because it distinguishes the different boxes. You got legacy, you got quadrilogy, you got anthology. Yep, yep. Um, in any case, that began like a year and a half's worth of the documentary capture and editorial, and then also the special edition cuts of three of the four movies, because Aliens already had a special edition going back to the Laserdisc era. Yep. So we were looking at doing extended cuts for one, three, and four. Um, and that was epic. I mean, we had a huge crew of people, of editors, of post-production people, uh, visual effects houses that each had a, a piece of, of those films. And um, it was, I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun, but a huge responsibility to get it right. And in some cases, you had like three, you had David Fincher who wanted, he wanted no involvement at all, you know, right. and, I, and I tried, I definitely tried to get him. <laughs> and and there's a couple nibbles at it, but not, but he never could quite get him to, to sign on. And I, I understand why I totally get it. Um, and then Jean-Pierre Genet on Resurrection, who he, he, he seemed fine with everything, but I'm not sure he fully understood what we were really, you know, doing in terms of like creating a new cut. And, and we had to kind of re-explain some things now and then I'm guessing it was just a, lost in translation type of thing, sure. but um, so, and then you had Alien, the original, that really was, you know, aware and interested and on it. And, uh, and you know, we even had a much longer cut of the so-called Alien director's cut. Um, we had everything cut back into it and we screened it at Fox and really um, thought it was too long. And we're like, yeah, that's why you cut it down to the cut that we had in 1979. <laughs> like that, that is the perfect cut of the film and you correctly got it down to the best film you could get it to. Right. This is not intended to be a better version. It's intended just to show fans what it could have been. It's like a what if. Um, so he still felt like, well, there's, there's still a, a, an alternate version of this that's still watchable. It's still not so long. So let's try to cut that together. So he kind of went off and made a, a, a pseudo director's cut. It's like, it is a cut the director made. It's not, it's just not the traditional. The preferred cut. version. Yeah. Right. So we had a very carefully worded introduction in the booklet about <laughs> about that to explain to people. But in any case, so that that was that was the the quadrilogy experience was just putting all that stuff together and interviewing you know I think it was about eighty people and uh, you know across different continents, um, and uh, and then you know not knowing if we'd get James Cameron for a commentary until like right at the end like you know, like that was one of the last things we did you know. Um, and that, that would have sucked not to get him, you know, and, and, and he gives one of the best commentaries I've ever heard. I mean, I thought he was fantastic. And, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really amazing journey, that one. And then to revisit it seven years later for the, uh, the anthology Blu-ray set was fascinating because we could fix mistakes. We could kind of correct some things, but then we added hours more content, both archival, both vintage and then new stuff. So after the, the Blu-ray, the anthology Blu-ray, it's like, I don't know what, what more you could possibly do. I mean, you probably could, there's probably like, you know, five or 10 minutes worth of stuff you could probably dig up and put in there, but I feel like we did it. So it, that, yeah, it feels extensive. And it's one of the things I admire most about it is what you, what you put into those feature length docs and what you left out. And yet, you know, to keep them a, a certain thing, to keep them a, a story within itself, a movie within itself, truly and then the things that you took out but that you still felt worthy of including and in, you know other forms or little featurettes or whatever it's just a it's a i mean for fans of those movies obviously it's invaluable 
uh, anyone who grew up with uh, Starlog and Fangoria, and you know, just any, just a still photograph could you could be just could light you up, and if you were a big fan of these old movies, and I just I really feel like it's hours of that kind of excitement. We'll get to you know why 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 they're don't doing those anymore here in a bit, <laughs> but um, so before we move on from Alien, because I got a couple of other questions I want to ask you about slightly more obscure stuff. Because it's because my name's on the show and I get to do that. Um, but what was I totally wrong about? We kind of mentioned that in the Alien show too. Well, we're wrong about stuff all the time. I mean, we're doing our best to recall stuff in this radio show format. And no, but, I, I totally, I totally understand, and I, and I, and I'm, I'm the same way. It's like that's usually I, I try to like not if I, if I'm not a hundred percent or at least ninety five percent sure about something, I try just to nod and listen and smile and but uh no it was just it, the way the way michael bean tells the story it, it wasn't so much that they used his imagery in the opening of three for the kind of the dossier screen or whatever uh and then went out with it and then he sued because they went and didn't have his permission they they sought his permission oh. it was just that he thought he was going to be in three oh. and then they found out that they were going to kind of very you know unceremoniously kill hicks off that he was sort of pissed off about it and he kind of didn't really want to participate or he didn't, you know, he didn't cooperate fully early on. They kind of kept having to offer him money. And, and that was, that was, the, that was the part that I think you got correct was the fact that they, he got paid more for the approval for the clearance for that one photo of him. <laughs> right. Then he got paid for the, the, for, the, for aliens. So, right. um, yeah, it wasn't like it was, it was contentious, but more politically, not legally, you know, right. it was just, right. They like, didn't, they didn't ever come to court or anything like that, but it yeah. was that sort of, yeah. there was always the underlying threat, mm -hmm. I think of something like that, which made it, it got him paid off and he deserves it. He deserves it. Totally. totally. And, I, and I get it. Like after, after the way aliens was received and his character is so beloved, it's, you know, you would think that they would try to find a way. To, to involve him, but I, I bring this up a lot when it comes to the transition from Aliens to Alien 3, not in terms of narrative story time, but in terms of our real world production time, it was like, you know, Carrie Henn had aged seven years, yeah. right? Between Aliens and Alien 3. So you, if you're trying to make a direct continuation, you'd have to recast Newt, and that you'd lose that, that emotional connection you had from Aliens, because everyone yeah. loved her, right? So then you have to ask yourself, well, all right, so let's just say we keep Carrie Henn, who I believe moved on to like not being an actress, right? She's a school teacher at some point in her career. Exactly. Um, so I feel like, okay, so are you gonna basically keep Ripley and Newt and Hicks and even Bishop kind of rebuilt sort of on ice in terms of their development for seven years, like off screen? Like what are they doing off screen for seven years that we're not seeing so that you could have Carrie Henn come back for Alien 3, just because it took that long to get the, the third movie going. And that probably wouldn't work either, because, I mean, once Ripley's home, she's not going to go back ever again. She's not going to get into the mix. So, so <laughs> yeah, fool me once. Shame yeah, exactly. on you. It's, just, yeah. it's a huge storytelling challenge. Like I said, all the Alien yeah. 3 scripts that were out there, it, almost none of them continued those characters. They, they all sort of start fresh, because what else do you do? Right. Um, so, so that's the thing is like you've got Hicks who needs like at least you know a few months to recuperate from all the acid burns and stuff. Uh, <laughs> Bishop needs to be rebuilt almost from scratch. It's almost not Bishop unless he just uses you know his AI and all new body or something. So it's it's such a regardless of how you look at the beginning of Alien Three and how abrupt it is and how 
you know, brutal and merciless it is and how it deals with these characters that we love from Aliens. <laughs> that was some version of that was going to happen anyway. It was, it was either going to be recasting or the, 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 their lives off screen would be so radically different by the time you'd have a continuation seven years later. You can't do the, you know, the, oh, you drifted through the core systems gag again and, and you slept for seven years and, oh, here we are, you know, you're on another alien right, situation. Right, right. So it's like, I, I get it. It's like, really, it was really hard to continue that story with those characters. And here's the thing I would, I would, I would posit in terms of the brutality of killing, just, just really unceremoniously killing Hicks and Newt so abruptly in the beginning of three is death is the theme of alien three. Yeah. Um, the, the theme of alien is, is ostensibly birth, right? Yep. The birth, the birth of the creature, the birth of Ripley as a hero, the birth of the franchise aliens is about survival. It's about life. It's about, you know, motherhood, motherhood, it's motherhood. Yeah. It's definitely it's about procreation. It's about all these kind of like life centric things. Alien three is about death. And, and from the very beginning, the death of the Fox fanfare, right? The beginning right. of the film, yep. the, the, the death of Hicks and Newt. It's sort of like the, mo the movie is instantly telling you what it's about and, and unapologetically and just like, it's telling you buckle up because these characters that you love, like all of us, we're all gonna die. We're all, we're all gonna like, everything we love is gonna go away at some point. And this film is here to really reinforce that. So, and, 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 and it basically says, no one escapes it. And at the end of the film, we learn no one does escape it. The, the, the absolute queen of this franchise, Ripley, does not escape it. So it's, it's a coherent theme and it makes sense. It's not pleasant, it's brutal, but it's <laughs> right. like to do anything less than that, to me would, would be a disservice to those characters and the franchise. And, and again, this is like without even pondering a resurrection down the road, which completely right. kind of goofed on everything that came before it. But I feel like three is a coherent story. It's a coherent theme. It, it, was, it was just very kind of like painfully put together in ways that the filmmakers obviously didn't have a good time on that film. Right. The fans didn't have a good time watching it. It's a very painful, bitter pill of a film to swallow. But I do think there's merit and artistry in in the wreckage of that film. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, but I, one last thing on that, you know, your your uh, I don't your documentary on Alien Three was edited slightly for the quadrilogy, and then it's been restored in anthology. The mm -hmm. just not a lot of bits, but a few of David Fincher's uh, darker moments that were actually captured in the on-set footage got taken out, I'm sure for political reasons. Like I sort of get it when I watch it, but it, it it's nice to see it back in there. I mean it's it's nice to see it the you know, as whole a story. And even if it's it's nice to have Fincher's voice be a part of it in any way that it can be. So I, I think that's that's worth saying worth saying and pointing out that that's pretty cool. Is there any oh, yeah. any behind the scenes nugget about that that we might want to know? Oh there's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll just say this, I'll just say that just, you know, so people understand that the, the, the version of the documentary that's on the Blu-ray is the best version to see. Uh, yeah. The version where it actually says Wreckage and Rage making Alien 3, not the, ma the making, making of Alien, Alien 3. 3 that's on the DVD quadrilogy quadri set. So yeah. the, the, the Blu-ray version is a half hour longer. Uh, it has a lot of stuff restored. It has the, the titles of the pieces fully restored because the right. titles were censored back in the day too. So, um, you know, yeah, it's, it, look, um, to their credit, Fox had always been um, pretty open to having the studio criticized in the content of, of being fairly, you know, candid with, with how we told these stories. 
And this one was probably just too hot for DVD. It was just too, it was just too much. There was just yeah. too many things involved. And, and, and keeping in mind that, you know, Fincher, you would think he would never work with Fox again, but then he went on to do Fight Club and eventually Gone Girl. And so it's like he, there was a relationship that needed to be preserved and protected. And, <laughs> and a documentary about a, a failed alien film from many years ago was not gonna, you know, tip the card over. Uh, they weren't gonna allow that. So it was delicate. Um, and it was, I, I will say this, I, I was not a big fan of how it was handled. Um, and that's why I took my name off of that, the DVD cut. However, in the time following that, and you know, everyone kind of cooler heads prevailed and we all kind of calmed down. And, and again, these are people that everyone is doing the best job they can. They, everyone has their little piece of the puzzle and they're just trying to like make sure the puzzle doesn't get upended and flipped onto the floor. It's like, you have to <laughs> make sure this, this thing comes together to, to form something. So. It was, it was really great to be able to go back and revisit and not just restore the cut to the way it originally was, but, but we actually added a few things. And on top of the few things we added, we actually added this whole like an hour and a half of what I call enhancement pods, yep. which are kind of like deleted scenes from documentaries. So so you're getting like, I don't know what, what it's like four and a half hours of Alien 3 doc material um, that you wouldn't have gotten in the previous version. So it's just... It was, you know, it's it's a journey. The, all these projects are journeys, and sometimes they're painful. Sometimes there's problems. I don't think anyone is actively trying to sabotage anything. It, it just, <laughs> right. it's just there's there's interests that need to be protected and and respected and discussed. And you know, and, and sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And um, that was one. I think it had a happy ending. I, I think the, yeah. the alien set. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of those. I mean, that's what one of the great things about behind the scenes documentaries is it's if you're interested at all in how the sausage gets made, you also have to understand it's sausage. It ain't pretty all the time. Um, mm -hmm. and so uh, can I also just uh, real quick, the fact that you um, when you said you took your name off of it uh, at one point and put on, I believe it's Frederick Garvin. Um, male prostitute me, brings me so much joy <laughs> oh that makes me so happy um i have a i have a quick i have a question um about one you know in, in reading up on on um on your work and and how you make your uh make your films um the these these documentaries um it it's come it comes up a few times it comes up over and over about how you uh how you you create a uh, a room for your interviews i'm talking about for your inner when you're interviewing someone to talk about to kind of go back in time and talk about these things you create a, a really comfortable room that um that seems to really allow people to feel comfortable to uh in sharing uh, I, I, can you can you talk a little bit about what you know what how do you approach getting someone to go back in time on something that was either wonderful or uh, as, as you've discussed, sometimes it's, it's, you know, it can be, it's from a challenge. It might've been from a challenging time. How, how do you set up your room? And include, if you can, the, just the idea that you do the, you're the, your own camera operator a lot of the time in those settings. Hmm. I find that interesting. That that's, that's been heavily overstated. I'm not sure how that began. Um, uh, the, 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 the traditional sit down interviews, I rarely operate the camera. It's more of like when I'm on set, you know, and if, mm -hmm. and like, and, and even now I've kind of backed off of operating on camera because it's just, it's not necessary, but, but a lot of times on the, on the kind of like the, the modern documentaries, not the retrospectives, um, and I'm on set, it's, it's nice for me to have the camera because I can, I can get, I can get in the orbit of the filmmakers better 
than an EPK crew, uh, electronic press kit uh, crew that has, you know, a, a really nice big professional camera and you got a, a sound person recording sound. And it's like a, an armada of people kind of moving around. And it's like, well, that's... Who's, who, they're documenting for sure, but their primary goal is to deliver material that helps promote the project. Whereas, that's, that's, the, that's the top layer goal, but they're right. definitely documenting for future use. They're trying to future-proof everything. Right. But um, so in terms of like the sit-down interviews and the, the retrospectives, um, I've only had to operate the camera a few times. That's because I'm, I was the only person you know, there to capture it. Well, but, there's not a lot of camera moves in those anyway. Right. Yeah. But you still need to have someone there in case someone starts, you know, starts doing this and starts to move around. <laughs> so, um, uh, but no, what I what I definitely try to do is when it comes to the the, the retrospective documentaries is, you know, approach it as as if I'm a fan, and and ninety nine percent of the time I am. You know, I'm I'm very I'm very curious about the process. I respect their art. I I just try to, you know, be a friendly face, and I and I also try to engage them in such a way that you know. I'm on their team and I'm going to, I'm there to make them look good. It doesn't mean I'm going to whitewash anything or I'm going to like try to make it seem like it, Oh, it so-and-so is a genius. And this film was a breeze to work on. It's like, no, we're going to, we're going to get into the truth of it. We're going right. to get into the honest stories, but you can trust me that I'm not going to twist it or pervert it or exploit it in such a way that makes people look bad. Right. You know, usually when you see the clash of creative people, it's not necessarily that it's, it's ego driving it. Of course, you know, in the movie business, ego is everything. It's huge, but but when once you once you have that level playing field of everyone has an ego, then it's sort of like who has the best ideas and what's the best way to achieve the story and the visuals and the everything that you're trying to achieve, and that's where sometimes you get clashes and you get people kind of rubbing each other the wrong way, and I try to focus on the process of it, not the, the not necessarily the, the soap opera of it, you know. And, and I feel like that allows for, for an easier conversation with people when they realize, oh, you're not here like, you know, Entertainment Tonight trying to get the, the juicy you know, dirt on it's somebody. Not, not alien behind the music or anything right. like that. Right, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we're, we're here to kind of do a, uh, you know, a, a, like a, it's like a pleasant autopsy, basically, <laughs> if, if, if there's such a thing, if there's such a thing, you know, it's sort of like, let's, let's unearth this and let's remember the good stuff and and the bad stuff is there too but you know let's let's try to assess what happened yeah because it comes back to it comes back you know i i don't remember who the first person to say it but it's something that you know we brought up in the show in the past but it's sort of an old adage that it's it's amazing anything actually does get made uh let alone something good gets made because there are so many there are so many cooks in that in that kitchen um, it takes so you know it is it's a true collaborative art form, um, and certainly and, on the level of the well, it, it's collaborative art form at, at any level, but the, in, on the level of films like we say Gladiator and I mean, the, yeah, so Herculean undertakings, not yeah, to so mix that, I mean, metaphors, that, but yeah, yeah, that's great that you. I mean, I, I like I like to hear you say that that it's uh, you know that it is about look, I'm not gonna yeah, we're not gonna it's not a puff piece, but let's. Let's let's celebrate even the hard times because, um, you know, as we all know, you, you know, the, those hard times m may lead to something better being done down the line or, you know, you know hopefully going to avoid any some of those issues or maybe they're learning experiences. 
Um, it's, that there's a journalistic integrity to it that's very, very cool that shows up in it's in particular the retrospective docs, which are, you know, we talk on the show about t- we do our best to include this in whatever we talk about, telling this the story behind the story, which those just are the epitome of that, and that's that's why they appeal. There's a few of the more onset active. This is what happened. We, we have no distance from this to judge it or whatever projects that you did, which are equally fascinating in a sort of different way. Um, but before we leave archival stuff, I want to ask you about uh, dueling directors. You probably won't get asked about that too much. No, I think you're the first. Um, <laughs> it's it, dueling director. We, we, in our go back in our uh, sword fighting episode, you'll hear us talk about a film called the duelist, which was Ridley's first uh, feature film after having done so many, remarkable sort of advertising projects um without getting super into what that movie is or or taking our time with that there's this uh, on the original paramount dvd and on the uh it's been carried over to the shout factory blu-ray there's this kind of a i just think it's this really different it's just different in a simple way but sometimes that's you know that that's like where the revolution happens a simple idea um, where there's this one director, Kevin Reynolds, who directed uh, Fandango and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and uh, very famously Waterworld and a bunch of other things. And he is in this sort of simple interview segment for a modest film, which I assume the budget on the DVD for that was minuscule compared to something like Aliens. Um, you, you have Kevin Reynolds interviewing who loves the film, you know, like a friendly face, as you say, like there, there couldn't be a more friendly guy talking about the duelist with Ridley Scott. And I love it. I love it because it's fun to listen to two filmmakers talk. I love uh, the Soderbergh, James Cameron uh, commentary on Solaris because it's just mm. these two radically different people and to hear them discuss things in a bookish kind of way not the bit nuts and bolts but just the themes and storytelling and stuff is riveting this the same way and i thought kevin brought out a different side of ridley in a way that we usually see which i think is kind of brilliant of course i'm a big fan of duelist so mm-hmm. any anything any ideas about that or how that came about or because i really oh, yeah. think it's cool um yeah that was fun to do and uh and it's funny because you are the first person to really ask me about it. So I'm, I'm like kind of dusting off the memories. But uh, <laughs> sure. I saw sharing office space with uh, with another production company, a DVD production company. And um, my friend, uh, John Mefford, who's a who's a really great behind the scenes producer, uh, he was working on The Count of Monte Cristo. And he was going to have Kevin Reynolds come in to do a commentary or an interview or something. And one of my all time favorite favorite movies is the beast uh directed by kevin reynolds which i think is a phenomenal film mm, agreed and i love fandango too I was, and i haven't gone to usc film school i definitely knew about kevin reynolds quite a bit so it was like i was i was a fan i said hey could i say hi to him when he comes in and john said sure so i got to talking to kevin i had him sign my beast dvd and my beast one sheet and he really you know wrote a nice little thing on it and then and then that began sort of a two-pronged kevin reynolds sort of relationship one was because he he mentioned to me how much he loved the duelist because and by way of count of monte cristo being another sword action movie um he said he said man if you ever need anything for for me from me on the duelist let me know because we were warming up to do the duelist so i thought well the guy be so great to have the two of them talk you know so we did that and we set up at ridley's production his uh, commercial production company rsa in west hollywood 
And what was really amusing, I remember, was we had it set up very well. I mean, I loved the way the shots were and it looked great. And that was not at all what the final result was, because as soon as those two guys got in there, they reset all of our cameras, our, our <laughs> cameras for, for, for a DVD featurette. And they were like, no, I should go over here. And, and so they were like pleasantly arguing with each other about where are the best places to put the cameras. And so I look at that piece and I think I never would have put those cameras there because they're like over the kind of like over the shoulder and they have to look at you know, it's like it's really awkward. Um, but it got them to look at the video screen to kind of remember the movie as like a video commentary of sorts. So they were literally doing directors <laughs> on the setting up of this, this featurette. Um, so that was that was fun. And then I went on to produce uh, the DVD extras for Kevin's film, um, Tristan and Solda, yep. which, uh, which Ridley executive produced. And I got to go to Prague and uh, in Ireland for that. And that was really great to watch Kevin work because he's a very unique uh, filmmaker. So um, anyway, so that was the Kevin Reynolds story and dueling directors kind of allowed for, for both my fandom over the beast, which I can't recommend enough as a great war film, especially nowadays. And uh and then, um, and then, uh, Tristan and his soul, you know, like that was kind of a great two twofer that came out of the duelist experience. Very cool. So I sort of lost my train of thought. I, I just think it's a fantastic extra. I, and it's fun to hear about the camera angles cause they are decidedly different than mm -hmm. what you're used to from that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, this is very, very cool. Um, and Tristan is old. So I think it's a sort of underrated movie too. That's, uh, I mean, beautifully shot and sort of interesting story and a, and a very palatable kind of told in a very palatable Hollywood way, uh, that I kind of dig. So, um, I can't, we can't get too much into dangerous days. I'll just say that the Blade Runner set, you know, just so I get this on the record, cause we want to move on to, you know, the, the, the films that you've directed yourself. Um, I just believe that's uh, from a home video perspective, before we start talking about home video briefly here, uh, getting Joel to warm up the fanfare. Uh, it just, the, I think it's the finest collection just ever. I mean, the, the, it's got all the cuts. We talk about how valuable that is and how it, how providing everything sort of takes the controversy out of any differences between the things. I really believe the, the Blade Runner set is proof of that it's it's the living proof of that um the dangerous days feature link doc in itself is I, I think it's the best sort of again best there's some that are really extraordinary that have come out you know in older eras and stuff that are kind of fly more fly on the wall but i think it's the best you know backward looking historically you know with the historical context burnt into it Thank you. A doc um, that I've ever seen. And of course, I'm a ma massive Blade Runner fan. And we got the director's cut there back in 92 or whatever it was and started watching it in widescreen. And that's a film that wasn't even super popular in its day and has it's grown in its theme. And then uh, just to get that and to get all that work and to have everybody on there. I guess uh, uh, Sanderson isn't on. There's a couple people missing, a couple people who've moved on, but virtually everyone... Really? We invited everybody. We, yeah. you know, we invited William Sanderson. We invited Van Gellis. I spent months speaking with Van Gellis's lovely manager uh, uh, named Cherry Vanilla. Uh, she was wonderful to talk to. Um, and we were, we were, I was getting ready to scramble a crew to fly to Greece to interview mm -hmm. Van Gellis. And it was a, such a painful job to have to go to Greece for, <laughs> for an interview. <laughs> yeah. The things that you do. The things, you know, the that things, you, do. The things you do. Wow. Um, 
And, but, but it just, it just, you know, it wasn't meant to be. And eventually you run out of time and you, you gotta, you gotta finish, you know, it, it's but, not missing much. I mean, Van, Van Gullis's voice is in there. You got him in there, even though you didn't have it. No. I mean, oh, you, oh, you mean like kind of spiritually the, got his voice? Well, the uh, music, it, it, the, yeah. you know, and it's not like it, you don't talk about him. It's there. The, the, his work is represented in there. Yeah. Which no, we cool. try. We try to milk the Vangelis story as much as we could without actually having Vangelis. And it's difficult because and then and then like a few weeks after the box set came out, he gave an interview to The New York Times. I was like, oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's yeah. it's just awesome, and I just recommend everybody see it. I, even if you're not a Blade Runner fan, I can't imagine not being fascinated by the the twists and turns, and and more importantly, everything's in there. But what I love most about it is that it accurately represents this the change in perception of the film over time. Like that that to me is this kind of story of Blade Runner, the the story behind the story of it at least, and that that's there. You know, just you see. Uh, just Harrison Ford's sort of how oh, it feels almost like over the course of the documentary, he he grows to love the film a little bit more than he did before he somebody made him sit down and talk about it. It's it's kind of a remarkable thing to see on screen. Well, it was interesting because we got Harrison out of the eighty interviews we conducted. Harrison was number two, and I thought <laughs> I, I thought I'd be lucky to ever get him, and he said yes right away. And it it kind of caught me off guard because I thought we'd be deeper into the interview capture process. Uh, our first interview was Alan Ladd Jr., who was also our first interview on the Alien set. So he's kind of like the good luck charm interview, I think, for all these big projects, because um, he's great. But we had Harrison, and we were going to lose him to Crystal Skull had we not, you know, pounced when we did. So I, I wish I could have interviewed him later, because I think more stories would have come out from the other interviews that I could have then gone to him with. Um, but he was he was wonderful. And he told that, like, that great story about the recording of the voiceover that I, I love. And and that's, that was the first time I think I've ever been truly starstruck where I was like literally just like, you know, oh, my God, it's Han Solo. It's Indiana Jones. It's Rick right. Deckard right in front of me. He was like this hero, this movie hero for me growing up as a kid. And he tells that great story about uh, the, the voiceover session and he finishes. And all I could say was cool. <laughs> and he said he goes no it wasn't cool it was terrible <laughs> and that's when i realized okay get, get your head in the game snap out of it and, and right, then, right. It was, then i was better for the rest of the interview but yeah oh man that's oh, fun and that's great. and the other one i want to touch on before we move on to a video corner um although there, like i say there's so many but uh furious gods because everybody knows who watches the show i'm a huge kingdom of heaven fan i mean i'm a I, the I'm a huge fan of so many of these things. I, I even, I'm not even a huge fan of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Garfield Spider-Man movies, but the, the, again, the, the, just the extra features and the sort of story that we have that's preserved in time over those is, is fascinating and interesting. Um, the reason I bring up Furious Gods is because I think your match deck men were too, but Furious Gods, I think, as far as the you're on set, you're capturing the things happening in real time. Uh, certainly, there's some commentary in there mixed with the different artists and stuff, just like your other work. But it, what what's different about it is that it it reflects all these opinions while the film's made, before the film has had a reaction of an audience, before the film had a box office success or not. But, you know, it's not this ten years down the line where everybody's reflecting on something. 
it's very immediate and kind of amazing, and it it, it captures everything everything about because uh, you know, there's obviously there's mixed opinions about that. My own opinion is mixed because there's so many things about Prometheus that are just incredibly wonderful, and there's so many things that are kind of frustrating and and and, and weird. And seeing that how that came together, I mean, I think it, it it's a brilliant piece of behind the scenes filmmaking because you really you really when you turn to it, you get kind of all your questions asked. You, you know, you captured all those big decisions and uh, like you say, the the problem solving inherent uh, piece that that's large, and you captured just the scope of what that was. It's kind of an intimate film, I think, when I watch it. It's a lot of wide shots of the planet and stuff, but it. You know, Ridley deciding to do that all on these practical sets and stuff is it kind of a is incredible. Found the 3D stuff less interesting, but that's just me. But what anything you want to say about Furious Gods and just what you think of it? I mean, it's or just the just the limitations the, of of not being able to have that where I'm telling you a story about what happened to me back in my life. You know, I'm. But it's interesting because. To me, here's the thing with Prometheus is I, in, in doing the Alien Anthology set and the Quadrilogy before it, I always had this like fantasy of if only I had a time machine and I go back to like 1978 and start right. documenting Alien at Shepparton, you know, and, <laughs> and just try to, and but treated it like, like the modern behind the scenes coverage where you shoot everything. And, you know, you have GoPros and you have like, you know, drones and you're just like going nuts <laughs> shooting, shooting stuff. And, um, I thought I'll, I'm going to approach Prometheus as if it were alien. Like I was going back in time. So the documenting was, was fun because we had total access. Um, and I started documenting it probably a year or more before shooting even began. Um, because as soon as Ridley signed onto it, then began this really um, kind of like extended development process of not just the script, but the art department and Arthur Max, who had the kind of the war room set up in LA you know, allowed me to kind of go down every now and then and just shoot, like, what's new in the war room? What's the new art? And Arthur, explain this to me. Why Why is the previously 14-foot-tall elephantine alien creature now a 8-foot-tall white bodybuilder dude? <laughs> Things like that. Um, and, and he would explain. And, 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 and the thing is that I, as a, as a huge diehard fan of, of, of Alien, it, it, even though there wasn't the retrospective, you know, kind of prism to look at everything through, I could still imagine, like, Ooh, I don't know if that's going to work or, Ooh, I don't know if I like that, but still giving everybody the respect of, well, let's see what, let's see how it turns out because you might have a vision that I just don't have. And, and we'll, we'll see. And sometimes I was very pleasantly surprised by what they pulled off and what something I thought, Ooh, that looks a little janky was really great in the film. So it's like at that point you realize I, I need to trust them. They're trusting me to document this. So let me trust them to do their job. And let's just see where we end. You know, let's see what the final story is. So even though there wasn't that sort of like retrospective, like, well, if you had to do something different, what would it be? I still could like look at things and, and target topics and say, okay, that's going to be a hot button issue down the road. So let's cover it and then we'll have it banked. And if there's some story to be told there, then we'll have it. Um, so Prometheus was a lot of fun because of that. It was almost like a puzzle in real time that we were trying to figure out. But having the access to do it was gold. Like yeah. not in pre-production, especially to being on meetings and to see early designs and early ideas that some developed into something close to what's in the film. Some were abandoned for something else entirely. That was awesome. And then being on those sets was, was like, I mean, again, I, I became like the 11 year old who saw alien opening night at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. You know, I became that kid again, 
walking around to see the, the giant chair and, and all, you know, all the stages that were just you know, beautifully, beautifully built and designed. And that was, that was all good stuff. So, you know, it was, it was easy that one, you know, I mean, it was a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong. It was a lot of hard work, but it was pleasurable. It was fun. And, it, and that made it easy. And um, it's funny, just as a side note. Um, so I shot a lot of the, the pretty much, I think all of the pre-production stuff that I used for the documentary, there was an EPK crew that shot some early stuff at, at, uh, at Pinewood. And then when we began production, I kind of split between whenever I was there, I would shoot. But when I wasn't there, um, Ness White, Vanessa White, who was my like partner in capturing everything on, on set, she did a phenomenal job and she went on to the Iceland shoot and everything. I, I was watching Ted Lasso yesterday and she's like the DP of that show now <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. She's like, she's, she's in the, in the end credits. I'm like, Oh my God, like there's, there's Ness who did Prometheus behind the scenes with me. And now she's, you know, she's in the, the big leagues with, with Ted Lasso. So I thought that was really great to see. Um, Cause she was great. But um, anyway, so that Prometheus was again, hard work, but fun work. And um, I'm very proud of furious guys. I think it's one, it's one of the ones that feels the most like, polished coherent it wasn't i mean it's not that it wasn't rushed it, they're all rushed but at least it felt like okay we we delivered it safely you know i mean yeah, dangerous yeah. days i look at dangerous days i, I see like a million things i've changed or i'd, or I'd polish or i'd tweak furious gods i feel like no we we, can't, we got that one that's good it's really it, it's extraordinary i mean i like i say i treasure it for sure um and lastly on the making ofs uh do, i want to talk just a little bit about the twin peak stuff because i think that's like a just knowing your work and feeling like I know what to expect, you know, when I get, when I watch a doc, I haven't seen them all, but I've seen a whole bunch of them. Uh, that stuff just completely, <laughs> I mean, I guess you would expect for David Lynch and Twin Peaks. It's just, it's, it's style. It's totally out of left field, which is to say that it has this, not that your stuff doesn't have style, but it has this, it has a style that is front and center, I guess, in, in those, even though they're, kind of behind the scenes and there's there's three different ones um and i'm gonna forget the proper names of them what's 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 the one called i've got your page up here because i knew i would remember i knew i would forget a whole bunch of proper names um what's the one called where uh where you just follow lynch around on the set uh that's a very lovely dream a very lovely dream ah so good um that's amazing, and it has a, but it has it. There's something else to it. I don't know if this just happened because you were working with these people in these setting. Obviously, the one where the, where David interviews his characters, you know, that's going to be a stylized. It's a stylized idea, but even the one where it's you're the you're the fly on the wall behind the scenes guy capturing this sort of it, it still has a weird, surreal sense of wonderment to it and <laughs> i just kind of amazed what of that what of that did you have to kind of pre-plan and what of that just happened and you just were happened to be there to, to catch it well i i was kind of summoned to do that almost as a as a, as a backup i was originally not going to do that because uh david has as a has a documentarian named, named jason s who has like the, the full carte blanche to like go in and and document everything as you see in his pieces in the box set they're they're very those are crazy fly on the wall like what he yeah. got and i was i was working on a, on a star wars project actually uh at lucasfilm in san francisco and i just happened to be like halfway to seattle and i got the call <laughs> from cbs to say hey can you know uh, it's the first 
it's, it's like it was early on in the shoot for for the season three or whatever you want to the return or whatever you want to call it but uh-huh. the new the new season and um and jason was not available to shoot and they're 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 basically back at all the original locations and no one's there covering behind the scenes can you kind of scramble and get up there so i did so you know i, I left a galaxy far far away i went to a <laughs> To, to Twin Peaks. And um, that was that was surreal. And one of those moments where I thought, man, I just I wish I could tell my my child self how awesome this this job could be from, from time to time. Um, and so I was ostensibly there just to, to cover for Jason, just to shoot footage for him that he could possibly maybe use. But his style, and my style are, are, are very different. And it's not because we, we couldn't coordinate. It's just that he hadn't really he, I, I had, I had no understanding of what he was going for. So I was basically just going to kind of like hose the set down and capture whatever I could capture and hope for the best. And then he could cut that into something that he was going to construct, having no idea what he was going to do. So um, I shot it very traditionally, just thinking, let me just capture basic things and try to get in for the good stuff and try to have fun with it because it is, it is Twin Peaks, but it's, it's not my baby. You know, I'm just, I'm just helping out. So then, you know, a year and a half later or whatever, when they're finally getting ready to do the box set. And we're trying to figure out what to do with my footage because it does not, again, it doesn't really work with Jason's style. The question comes up, could you cut something together that is still Twin Peaksy, is still kind of Lynchian, but uh, is your own thing. And that's where, you know, it's, it's like it's like the alien. It's like you morph or you merge the host with, with the alien and then you get this other thing, right? Yeah. So it's sort of like, okay, so yeah, I, I can do my thing, but I still need to to use the Lynch DNA to make it belong in that universe, you know. And so, and frankly, that's more fun to do something different and, and unusual and unexpected than the traditional thing, which a lot of people that's all they expect from you. That's all they want from you, frankly, because they don't want to have to think about what is this, you know, <laughs> this is different. I'm not used to this. Even behind the scenes, you they they want to define you. You're the guy who does this. Yeah. And this is what we want. And if we wanted yeah. something else, we'd go to some other guy. And it's, yeah, I get it. So, so yeah, so basically we, the, 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 the brief was just, you know, take your footage, come up with something interesting that's not the usual thing that, you know, has just some kind of different vibe to it. And being a huge David Lynch fan and loving, you know, his work and, you know, it wasn't me riffing on his style because you can't. There's only one David Lynch. But <laughs> right. you, can, you can still kind of like say, I'm going to enter into a, a stranger entry point into this behind the scenes content and, and not strange just to be weird, but like, just, just try to find a different perspective, try to find a different style, trying to find a different tone uh, and, and try to make it maybe a little more cinematic, you know, for, for lack of a less lofty term than that. Um, and I think, I think it was, we did, I think it was, it's a fun piece and it, and it, and it feels good because there's a lot of love, I think for, for Twin Peaks, not just from the fans, but from the people who make that, uh, that, that show, that universe. And I, and I, I, it's like not everything is Alien Three. Not everything is Blade Runner. You you can have a very pleasant set uh, that still has certainly creative conflict, but that's the good creative conflict. That's where the ideas spark out of. So anyway, it was that one was was a lot of fun to do, and it was great to kind of like you know take the take the handcuffs off and 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 do something a little bit different with the the final piece. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to use that. Cool. I actually, we're going to do this in a different <laughs> yeah, cool. order, Joel. I'm going to use that as a okay. transition into your 2012 feature film, um, Crave, and we'll do Great. Video Corner at the end um, when we're tired and uh, can just be goofy. Uh, the 
you directed your own feature. Um, I can't remember all the names of the stars, but it features a couple of familiar faces, uh, Ron Perlman, notably, and um, Ed Furlong's in it. gives a really interesting and fun performance in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, Crave, I, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it, so I'm sorry about that. So I hadn't seen it until just this week. Uh, most but, people haven't. <laughs> yeah, but, but like I said, I, I didn't come across it when I, you know, I'm a fan of yours, so I thought it would at least have been on my radar, and it totally wasn't until we were preparing for this interview. Um, I checked it out, and, and when I was done watching it, because I only had a couple of days, I kind of wanted to cheat a little and see what other people thought of it. So I'm going online, sort of reading these reviews. They're all, you know, 10-ish, 8-ish, 10-ish years old. And, um, and it's an, it's, it actually was telling to me, so this is my way into asking, talking about Crave, uh, they, you know, there was, there's this whole, there's two kinds of reviews for Crave, truly. I mean, I, I didn't find a third, um, they're, they're the people who sort of let, let themselves be kind of taken over by the movie's sort of uh, strange vibe and by its deeper meaning and seem to truly enjoy it and, and even be affected by it. And then there's this other people who feel they were tricked into watching it. (laughs) You and I, you and I were joking about uh, the trailer for uh, your short uh, love bite and how the trailer is sort of misleading, I think in a kind of fun way, but um how I, we love trailers like that. We love the trailer to tease us a little, and we don't really want to know the whole story. You know, it's like when you watch the We Are Marshall trailer, and you literally get all three acts, two separate triumphs of the human spirit. You see the entire film in front of your eyes. You almost don't need to go to the theater to see that anymore. Yeah. And that's... Execs know what they're doing. I mean, they, they've tested people. They ask people. It, Americans have proven that they want to know what the thing is. They want to be set up for the proper expectations. Expectations are everything, and they want to, they, and then they want that delivered to them. And if they feel like they've been bait and switched, they, they, I don't want to speak for everybody, but it's a true phenomena that audience can really get ugly and turn against something. Um, Crave's amazing. Can we show the show the festival poster of Crave, Joel, if you have it handy? Yeah, that's the first one. Yep. This is the Comic Con. That's a very cool poster. And what I like what I like about this poster is that it that's it feels like this is the the self image of what this guy kind of wishes he was almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Josh Lawson and Emma Long. They're worth mentioning because they are they do a really nice job in the film. Uh, then show the what's kind of ended up being the theatrical poster. Yeah, okay. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> or it's ooh, that's that's not the theatrical poster. That isn't. What's this? Uh, that's 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 like a home video poster. I, I hated, <laughs> but I, I allowed because you know it's like after Inception, everyone had to put cities upside down, and I was like, ah, that's got nothing to do with this movie. But if it's yeah, I don't it, remember it, the helicopter attack either. No, the helicopters. Yeah. There's no. There's no <laughs> And, and, and I think it's funny that they put a dump, they, they put a literal dumpster, dumpster fire on fire. I know. <laughs> that's actually my favorite part of that poster because I feel like yeah. that's at least kind of tapping into more of what your movie is. Uh, um, but now if, if you go to IMDb, I think the the final final poster is. Oh, not I know that. Okay, so this is funny. This one. This is the DVD. Uh, this cover. one cracks me up. This is this is the one that Walmart approved. And literally, the the bottom fifty percent of that poster is not even in the movie. It's like, it has nothing to do with the movie. He never carries a 
unconscious woman like that street is never in the movie there's no i mean it's, it's bizarre to me that and there's no revenge in the movie that's the other thing revenge at any cost there's like there's no revenge in the film and that revenge so, at any cost is it really it's carried through all of the you know streaming and everywhere i went that that phrase was front and center it's yeah it, it's 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 i only will say this i think it's a shame that people got tricked by like this image in particular well, it, it's in a way, it's it's my fault because I was given approval over this stuff, and I was also heavily, you know, told that if you want to make money, <laughs> you need to do what, what we're going to do. Right. And I told them when I was negotiating the, the deal, and I said I need to have approval over this stuff. I told them, I said, look, you can put it in an old greasy paper bag and leave it by a roadside, and if it sells, great. And that's I think that that gave them like the confidence to let me have that perk, I guess if you want to call it in my deal. Mm -hmm. But then when I saw what they did, I was like, Oh no. Oh no. And then when they showed me the Walmart thing, like Walmart will accept this if it goes with this art. And I was like, all right, you know, and it's like, you, you learn. And if I had to do all over again, I might've fought more or I might've tried to develop some other idea, but I saw some other ideas. And again, it's not that, Again, it's not that they're trying to sabotage it. They're just, they're just trying to find a way to connect with people. And and I learned this actually on the Blade Runner process was um, we were talking about the packaging and the suitcase with all the goodies in it and, and all the ways to sell Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. And and I was very uh, – George Parker, who is the, the marketing exec and probably the biggest cheerleader for Blade Runner at Warner Brothers, he said, look um, – you know you've got the fans. The fans are going to buy this no matter what it comes in. It comes in a you know, white box, the Black Helvetica Blade Runner, and that's it. And, and the fans will buy it. You need to connect with people who don't automatically buy this stuff or buy, or care about Blade Runner or they're going to, you know, like the people who aren't predisposed to buy this, you got to connect with them. So with that in mind, and when the Crave stuff came up and I thought, oh, okay, so even though this does not represent, correct, accurately represent my movie, or what I have in mind, or the posters I designed, this is going to connect with people, and it's going to sell. Okay, fine. And now I don't know if I would, I would be so you know uh, blasé about it, but back then I was sort of like, okay, you guys know what you're doing, you know. And that was like the the biggest lesson I learned was like, okay, we need to have a longer conversation about these things when you start showing <laughs> me revenge at any cost in a movie that has no revenge. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can bring it up, but, but uh, on, on IMDb, the main poster there, like that's the final, final poster. That, uh, I didn't. Even, I'm so sorry, I didn't give him that one. Okay. That, I know I, what I, it is. I think it's it's the one with the most of the the critic reviews on it. Yes, right? correct. And and it's the one on your Vimeo page where they're all the four our four principles are sort of mm -hmm. across the. Yeah. Yeah, Joel, if you can find that, can you? Yep. Yep. Just give me a second here. Thanks. I'm asking a lot of my uh, my internet. See how tricky it can be. That poster didn't fit my narrative, so I didn't include it. In oh the yeah, that's how. You know, that's how Ryan gets you. That's how yeah. he's he's so sketchy that way. No, it's funny you can do, but um, you can do that even by accident. Yep. There you go. That's it. there we go. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Like that's the mood of the film. You know, it's kind of noir. It's kind of it's very moody, but kind of dreamy too. And uh, that he's crossed he's literally crossed the police line he's crossed the line he's gone you know too far so 
yeah. those things that represents the film you know that look on his face is kind of badass but there's there much more of what that character actually is is captured there even though yeah. it's the same pose as the dvd the right. dvd really looks like a almost like it's going to be a buddy cop movie or something yeah yeah um yeah. <laughs> anyway i'm happy to say i'm in the the former group i i i just was content to watch this and let it wash over me. And I know that oh, I, cool. you know, a lot of people come into stuff. Perception is everything. And it seems to be sadly more and more the thing. Um, well, th perception, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad expectations, okay. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because on the festival circuit, it got really great reviews. Like, okay. like most reviews were really, very positive on, during the festival run. Then when it hit on video, it was like, it just like the reviews went down the toilet. And I'm just trying to figure out, is it because, when people go to film festivals, they're more in a, a charitable mood or they're more supportive or they're just like looking for the next big thing or they're just kind of like, you know, they're, they're a little bit more positive and enthusiastic versus home video. And a lot of these reviewers who just get like discs dropped off on their doorstep and they just like have to make, you know, oh, here's, here's like the 20th movie I have to review today. Right, um, right, right. That they're a little bit more jaded and cynical about it. So I don't, I don't I'm still trying to figure it out exactly because I've read really great reviews i've read some of, i've read reviews so bad i laughed out loud like it was so bad like uh if i can if i'm allowed one s-bomb it was the, my favorite one i read on on letterbox was uh uh the secret life of walter shitty <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I howled when i read that because it's like it's like i hate that guy but i love that guy so, yeah, yeah, always, yeah. you know yep. um uh, yeah real quick personally i i someone who um has uh, i I was in a show in, in New York uh, in my uh, New York acting days and the timeout New York review uh, of the show I was in began NATO should intervene crimes against humanity are being committed at the theater on 44th street. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the same way. I'm like, this is the greatest. And they're like, like, yeah, but it's clearly hating your show. And I'm like, I don't care. This is so great. <laughs> that we've talked to Michael about it since he's our mutual friend, but he, that mm -hmm. phenomena of what you're saying, where it's, this is the third movie I got to watch today. I got to get this out. If it doesn't, yeah. you know, if you just get off to a bad start with something, it can go bad from a review perspective. Mm -hmm. But I, what my, the review, Reviews I was reading, like I said, were they were Amazon reviews, they were Internet Movie Database, they were people, they were audience reviews as opposed to critic reviews. Um, so that because that's kind of the beat I wanted to put my finger on when we before we talk to you. You know, one there's a lot of things I liked about Crave. One thing that I really like about it, I don't know if you have any connection to this place, but Detroit is a real character in the thing, which is really really cool because I think it's it's. I, it's it you don't make a big deal out of it we don't stare at cityscapes or there's not long montages of the sunrises or any of that but it it's still you really sort of caught the essence of what it is down on the sidewalk detroit i don't know if you have anything you want to say about that or what the experience was like shooting there well it's funny because originally we were going to shoot it in um new york and then and i scouted new york in the summer i'm trying to remember the order of things then it was L.A. and I scouted L.A. and then it went back to New York in the winter to see what that would be like. And it was just a, it was kind of a money thing. It was like, yeah, you, you can fall out of bed and get an amazing shot in New York. Like wherever you point the camera, New York is New York. It's amazing. It's incredible. But then at the time, Michigan had the, the tax incentive for film to try to get, you know, try to generate more production. And uh, so that was the big reason to go to Detroit. And, and I was a little nervous about going to Detroit because I only had 
you know, I, I didn't know much about it other than what I saw in movies or what you hear on the news, you know, and I thought, man, I'm literally going to get murdered if I go to Detroit. I mean, it's going to be like, <laughs> you know, super dangerous. And I fell in love with Detroit. I got to say, I really did. I really enjoyed shooting. I mean, yeah, it was a little, little edgy, but um, it gave the film some life and it gave, kept me on my toes for sure. And it also is a beautiful city. I mean, yeah, a lot of it's kind of like this American ruin, but, um, but there are really, those ruins are beautiful. I mean, they are kind of like, they are art in, in, in their own way. So that provided some great backdrops. And, um, you know, we, we, I was lucky. We had a really long pre-production phase in Detroit where we got to scout tons of locations. And I had the, this philosophy of just because a scene takes place in a 99 seat theater, like an, like a, an actor studio theater, it doesn't have to actually be in a, in like a, in a black box theater where you just literally dealing with black walls, black ceiling, everything is really basic. And I, I'd seen um, uh, like a reference still or something of a, of an empty pool, an empty swimming pool that had like candles along the side of it. And I thought, why not have a play in a pool? Like empty, take, take the water out, put seats in there, make it different, make it strange. And eventually we ended up shooting our, our big play scene at an aquarium at the Belle Isle Aquarium um, that was abandoned and had all this beautiful green tile. And I thought, see, that's cool. Like I have not seen that before. And so that was the whole approach to, to Crave and the locations was let's do things that are not expected. Like just because the script says it's this, it doesn't have to be that. Um, and I rewrote the script for Detroit. I mean, a lot of the dialogue in it, uh, some of the references to like, you know, the Coney Island and, 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 the, and the, the, the street names and things like that. Those are all from Detroit and Detroit's kind of nomenclature. So um, that was, uh, it was, it was fun to do. It gave it sort of, a, you know, just authentic enough to feel like, oh yeah, you're, you're embracing the fact that you're shooting in Detroit. You're not hiding from it, nor, I mean, nor, nor should you. Um, what was interesting was the same time we were shooting, the Red Dawn remake was shooting on many of the same streets that we were shooting on. And a couple, a couple times they very graciously allowed us through to like shoot our stuff. It's like, yeah, they're making this whatever $80 million, you know, <laughs> movie action movie. And occasionally our, our set on the street would butt up against theirs and they allowed us to shoot, which is really wonderful for them to have done that. Um, and I believe our two films were the, were the last two films to get out of Michigan with that tax rebate. Um, and I think after that, the, the new governor, whose name I forgot, uh, he, he killed it. So that, and basically effectively killed the film industry in, in Michigan. Same thing uh, happened after, here in the Twin Cities. Tons and yep. tons of movies in the early 90s shot here because of the, purely because of beautiful, budget and because there's yep, uh, lots of girls, fun places instance, to shoot. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, yeah. poof, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. Jungle All the Way came quick, and then that was it. Real it quick. Uh, it, it's proud Minnesota, proud Minnesota thing. The, they're back. Ah. Just passed the legislature legislature this year. Uh, my dear friend is the head of the Minnesota Film Board, and she has worked really, really hard to to get that back. So hopefully, we'll start seeing some. Uh, yeah, C consider us on your back. on your next thing. <laughs> Come to the Twin Cities. Yeah, it's colder than Detroit, but I saw I saw um, I saw Drive for the first time in, in Minneapolis. Uh, that's, Drive that's the, the Gosling film or the yeah the Gosling film okay that's, um, a, fun, that's a fun movie yeah and I love I love that film but it was so it was so weird to see you know this kind of eighties style L A noir story in, <laughs> in Minneapolis but uh, it was it was it was that I, that was one of my big memories out of my my brief visit there um, but yeah so um had the, from a 
from a, a scripting standpoint, I guess maybe it's not scripting. It's all goes into it. But the you you did you write that script or did you rewrite somebody else's script? What was exactly was the process with Craig? There's two credited writers on it. Did you guys collaborate directly yeah, um, or? So what what happened was is I was you know for many many years I was trying to get my first feature going and um, and it was tough and I I went through several other scripts and other ideas that I really liked but just could not get traction with them. And um, I had been, because of Blade Runner, I became friends with uh, Issa Dick Hackett, Philip K. Dick's daughter, who runs the, the film side of the, the estate. And I, I asked her, I said, you know what, I, want, I really want to get back into the narrative directing thing that I abandoned after leaving film school uh, to do the whole DVD stuff. And I said, could I make a short film based on one of your dad's short stories? And she said, sure, absolutely. And she gave me five to pick from. And they were all they were all awesome. But then I found another one that was not part of the five that I really, really liked a lot. And I pitched it to her. She said, well, that's a special one. So let's let's see what you come up with. And that took like a year or two to, to, to wrangle this this very typical kind of Dickian concept, but work it into a narrative that made sense. And uh, Kaylin Egan, who was working with their, I mean, still does with with the with the with Electric Shepherd Productions, which is their film arm of the estate. He he came in and we sort of collaborated on that. Anyway, we did, we delivered a really great script that probably would cost like 150 million dollars to make. <laughs> so for my first feature, and, and, it, and it went from a short to a feature, by the way. So my first feature that was like no go. And EC even said she said, you know, could you maybe make something smaller for your first feature just to to prove that you know you can direct. And then at the time um, I was living in Hollywood and my neighbor, uh, Rob Lawton, he had made a film called Sex and Sushi, which was like micro, micro budget. But I was impressed that he had like, I mean, that he did it and it had a kind of a confidence to it. And I asked him if he had anything. And he said, well, I got this thing. It's kind of like Travis Bickle meets Walter Mitty. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And then he developed that and he wrote the first you know, few drafts. And we got to kind of an, an impasse where I just was not on board with the direction he was going. And there's a lot of it that I did like, but ultimately where it was like the third act, I had a major problem with. So we kind of went back and forth and it, just, it wasn't working. So I basically bought him out, you know, and I said, you know, I, I just needed to make, to make this work, to make this filmable, to make this something I'm going to spend the next year or two of my life on. And it turned out to be more than that. Um, I need to, to make this work. So, you know, we amicably parted ways and then I, I had my way with the script and, uh, it is what it is, you know, but again, a lot of it is from the original draft, but like I would say the third act is radically different from what was there before. There's a, it's, it's really interesting because it's kind of stylized. I think when we first meet our hero, um, he, he's, you know, there, these, the, like you say, this noirish sort of voiceover. Um, but I, I love, you know, and it, it, it feels a little like, I feel like it's a little bit of a put on, but the, and it is, of course, mm -hmm. you, you later, you achieve these moments of really raw, honest emotion. And they, they stand out partly because they're part of this sort of thing that we feel like we've seen before. And as to your third act, I just, the sort of, I identified with this character, even though he's not a type of person you want to I just feel like you either try and identify with people or you're just sitting in judgment of them. You know, I really related to that, that inner, that inner badass, you know, I, maybe my fantasies aren't the same as his, but that I'm going to, you know, I do this and I'm going to, you know, I just imagine myself as Johnny on the spot, being the hero, being the, you know, 
And what what actually happens, the reality of what happens and the emotional toll of it, and then the and then the big moment for every hero is wh what where do we go from here? I have to decide. I, I found all that really felt truthful and honest, and I really related to it. So it's a very cool movie, Crave, but you do have to uh, – I just well, I always like to set up the audience for – you do have to have an open mind. You need to go into it, I really believe, more like a festival goer, as you say. You, you, yeah. you know, hey, what's the next thing? What's the new thing? I mean, you got to have that attitude. If you're sitting down to watch a conventional revenge thriller – you're just gonna you're gonna get bitch slapped by it, and I think a lot of people out there in the world felt that way from from the Walmart artwork. They didn't get that kind of movie at all. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's definitely more of a. I mean, it's kind of more romantic than it's sold. It's more trippy and strange than it's sold. It's kind of like it's it's everything that's that was not sold basically, and it's <laughs> and, it, and it's you know again, it's, it's like it's hard to sell that. I get it. I so they sold what they could sell. I mean, that's, yeah. mm -hmm. that's the story of so many projects. That's why it kind of led off with that. It wasn't to put you to punish you in any way. <laughs> I yeah. didn't take it in that spirit. No, um, no, it's, but but I, I appreciate that you, you connected on the emotional level, level of it because um, it, to me, that is what I, I really like about that film is like, it's, it's a, it's a really um, intensely emotional journey that this character goes on. And I have to really credit Josh Lawson because when I was originally casting, I had a completely different Aiden, the main character, I had a different Aiden in mind uh, than Josh. And when Josh kind of came into the discussion, I was like, Oh man, he's like, you know, he seems like the boy next door. He seems really like a cool guy and he's like fun. And he's like, a, he's nice and he's smart and he's you know, all these things. And I said, that's not Aiden. Aiden's like this street urchin who's kind of like, eh, you know, and, um, <laughs> And in comes Josh, and, and we spoke on the phone. He was in Australia, and, and we spoke. And he approached it in such a great way because he he's also a writer-director, and he's mega talented. And he we had a discussion of the script from a writing point of view, and that was great because previously there was another actor who almost got the part who's like a, a name actor, and we only spoke about it from an acting point of view. And it was like the whole conversation with me pitching to him like, hey, come be part of this movie, and trust me, it's my first film, but... I'll work with you. And it was kind of like that kind of <laughs> you know, appeasing a, a star, you know, yeah, and Josh yeah. came about as a filmmaker, like a true died in the wool filmmaker, an actor, sure, but also a writer and a director. And that gave me the like, like true confidence to say, let's, okay, let's do this together. I mean, I didn't have you in mind, but let's try this out. And he almost immediately won me over with kind of a, a, a nicer version or maybe nicer is the wrong term, but more human more relatable so that we could all kind of like say, yeah, okay, he's dark, he's twisted, but there's some of me in him, you know? And I think Josh really crystallized that in a way that had I gone stranger and funkier and weirder, we wouldn't have gotten that. Yeah, no, I, that's, I, that's what resonated with me the most. I have to say in the whole story was that it's just like that we all go through that in our minds, you know, the film makes a game of it at first and then the game, you know, when reality starts seeping in, it just gets more and more intense as it sort of barrels to the end. And I, I, I just thought that was very cool. It, especially the, just the di disaster of the end is, it's just, it's, we set ourselves up for stuff. <laughs> we think it's going to be something and the reality of what it is sometimes is so humbling and horrible. And it's more nightmarish than, you know, than any like cheap stunt we could dream up in our imaginations really is. I, the film delivers on that front, really. And, and Emma, too, really brave and awesome performance. And just the way the actors sort of kept up with, 
you know, what was fantasy and what wasn't. Joel and I are both actors of a type, so that we tend to come to it a little bit from that perspective. But I really, really admired that a lot. I loved, uh, I loved Ron's, you know, you got to make it happen speech or, you know, got to do something. That was mm-hmm. just, I, I, I love whenever great. some sage character gives the exact wrong advice at the exact right time. Right. <laughs> it's right. always delightful. And he nails that. Yeah, no, Ron, Ron was Ron was great. That was that was amazing to get him on board like that. I mean, because we kind of lived near each other in LA and I'd run into him run into him at the market every now and then. And it was just it was just sort of like I remember the, the first time I saw Ron after we made Crave and I saw him at the market, and he gave me a big hug and everything. And he's like, Oh yeah, Crave. It's a good movie. I didn't think we were making a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, yep. like, like you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this uh, latest thing, you we were both got the uh, honor to sort of check out your, your short film that's making the run and some festivals and stuff. Joel, you got a poster for that one too that I did. Uh, yes, I do. I do indeed. Um at least uh, we've, we've got like 85 different posters for the short. For yeah, short they were film. they were hard to come by in a way I could show online easily. They're all, but there were a whole bunch of them. We're going to use hold one on for the second. shingle for the second. episode as well. The uh, the red hands reaching out in the front of the truck. Oh well, let me let me give you. I mean, you can always ask me. I'll I'll send you the real stuff. So let me I'll I'll send you the the official. That's a cool one poster. But sorry, I guess just I so the audience can see this here. before we make our pitch for it. Yeah. And barrel. There we go. Yeah, that's pretty much the original, the very first poster we did. Um, it, it, which, which, I, which I shot with my iPhone between setups on the set. <laughs> it, it captures a bit of the essence of what the thing is, I have to say. And, the, and, and those two characters, too. I mean, you know, just a still photograph, but the character comes through there, which I think is kind of neat. Hear that Apple? Send him a free. Let send him a free phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted. I, I wanted to capture sort of like the the the, the darkness of the post apocalyptic vibe, but then also the kind of the whimsy by having our, our cute little pup in yeah, there the as dog. well. Um, yeah, the, do- the, the dog, dog and the baby ga- carrier is awesome. Yeah. The dog is a game changer because um, it, <laughs> it is. It is a different. Uh, it absolutely is a different uh, a, a vibe, and it's um, you know that, um, yeah. Just it, it, ha- casting a dog. Did, did you have to cast that dog? Did you? No. Go so, or was it- so that's that's my wife Carly, not the dog. Uh, <laughs> my wife Carly, who uh, came up with the original idea for the short, and then we we wrote the script together, and that's our dog uh, Bella. And it was just funny, like literally about a, about two weeks before shooting, it was like that late in the game. Carly had just gone because Carly loves to take Bella places and we go to like farmers markets and things. And this is all pre pandemic, by the way. And uh, <laughs> she's, and she got a, like a, a baby Bjorn to carry Bella in. And Bella's always like super popular. You know, people want to take pictures with her and all that because he has like this little dumb dog with a tongue hanging out, just, you know, kind of going to places. So um, Carly had that. I thought, what if, what if they had a dog, this couple, like just to add a little bit of like to, to basically, add a twist to their dynamic of being in the truck and have the dog almost comment on their situation in a way. Right. And so, and because Bella is super sweet and, and, you know, easy, uh, we, we thought, well, let's, let's try that. And how funny would it be to see this, this dog in a baby Bjorn? Because I feel like in the zombie apocalypse, 
you don't want to have your hands full with carrying a dog and a bag and a gun or whatever. So have the the Bjorn. And also because when I was in film school, I was a big fan of John Woo. The one sheet for hard boiled was Chow Yun Fat holding that that fat baby, that cute little baby with a shotgun, which I thought was such a great image. And I thought (laughs) the, the combination of badass but lovable parent was a good, you know, it was a good match. So that's where she came in. So we had, it was our own dog and we set aside a long time on set to shoot her thinking, oh, it's going to be really tough to control an untrained dog in a situation where she has to perform. And she knocked it out like shot after shot. It was like she was born for it. It was crazy. Um, we, we oh, she's out so way... over the industry. Oh. I know. I know. And by the way, she was treated better than anyone else on set because we're shooting here in Georgia. It was wicked hot. And we had my car on all day with the air conditioning. So between takes, she'd go into the car, be fully air conditioned. She'd have water and snacks and people would come by and hug her and pet her. And she, she was treated like a queen. Um, and then we, we discovered, you know, She's very jealous of other dogs. So Kyle, who plays the lead, plays George, he has a dog um, uh, named Pippin who um, uh, they brought to set. And But we kept Pippin away from Bella. So Bella didn't know that Pippin was there. And then when we needed Bella to go crazy and bark because it would be a zombie or whatever, mm-hmm. we just kind of like lifted Pippin up into her, her eye line. <laughs> and, and, and he's just, he's just like, like that. And, and Bella went ballistic you know, while we're rolling. And, uh, and then it got to a point where we didn't even need Pippin. We were just like, we would knock on the, the side of the truck and, and she freaks out when we have deliveries at the house. So it's like, every time we knock on the truck, it'd be like a door. She'd go, so, so it was kind of easy to get her to perform. And, uh, and that was fine. And by the way, the truck is notable because there's, there's a lot of in jokes in love bite, but the truck is notable. It's the truck from Ant-Man and the Wasp that Ant-Man, when he becomes giant man in San Francisco and he uses that truck, like as a skateboard. Yeah, in the city. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, the that's, truck? The, that's the truck from Ant-Man and the Wasp. Very cool. That's that, cool. I think that means I think that that means that uh, Love Bite is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's in the canon. MCU. Canon, yeah. That's right. It's yeah. canon. Wow. That's gonna be part of the <laughs> What If series. Uh... And I believe I believe there's an upcoming episode of What If that is zombies, Marvel zombies. So. Oh wow! There all you fits. go. That, all that's fits. all synergy, baby. Like, like Kevin Feige, give me a call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's That's awesome. It's fun. It's a you know it's a zombie siege movie, but the problem, unlike most zombie siege movies, are, isn't how do we get out of here. The problem is something else entirely, and it it, uh, it it's 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 fun. I mean, I I don't. You said I could say whatever I want about it, but I just do not have the heart to. You know, it's it's like short fiction. It's short films. It, they don't all have to be this way, but they are largely have a kernel of an idea with some sort of payoff often a twist doesn't have to be but some sort of idea that you kind of nail and i i i people who are into zombie films and have seen a lot of them this is a easy breezy 16 minutes of your time that will yep. feel very familiar and yet a little different and I, uh i i you know there's a comedy and as you say i don't know if it's the film's Crave, I really believe, has romance at the heart of it. You know, truly. It, it might be a weird, twisted romance, but the romance is real. It's genuine. Um, this is about, uh, you know, the, the it's, it's about a, a relationship that's on the rocks and... Gets and worse. Just, yeah, and it's <laughs> yeah. just barely I, held yeah. together. And 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 it, it, it's kind of, it's clever how it works its way through that and ways that are familiar and ways that are sort of unimaginable at the same yeah, time. So. I, th- I think that, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I, I dig about it is it's, it's a, it's a movie where it's not, 
um it's not well what is happening here oh my god the dead are walking what is it this (laughs) is we've been in this world for a while there's zombie characters who have seen a lot of zombie movies for a change they even may even make the point of that which is fun yeah, yeah. I always, I always wonder about that. Like on Walking Dead, when they don't refer to them as zombies, they call them walkers or droolers, or we call them droolers yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, and it's like, cer- certainly in one of these universes, there are zombie movies. They know yeah. what zombies are, and I feel like on Walking Dead, they've kind of like st- sidestepped that. And I, I understand yeah. why, but yeah, uh, I, I we just chose to embrace it. Like, say, no, z- zombie movies exist in our world, and people have seen zombie movies. They know the rules. There's no reason to really <laughs> set that up because we know the people watching it have seen have seen zombie movies. So it's like, why mm-hmm. waste that time? They do talk quite a bit about the virus and how it spreads. And again, when COVID hit, I was like, oh, my God, like we really like we had that discussion before it really happened, you know, in a way like you had people on different sides of an argument uh, disagreeing about <laughs> the rules, or the rules of the virus. And we're right, still right, dealing, right. We're, to this day, we're still dealing with that. So wow. with no you know. end in sight. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's kismet, truly, that <laughs> your film is about that in a big way, or at least that that I don't know if it's exactly what it's about, but that that's. That's the MacGuffin, which gets us yeah. to our to the thing. Yeah. Uh, it's really, it's really neat. We can't give you pointers to where to go see that just yet, but we expect that'll pop up places. Audience, you gotta remember Love Bite and check it out. It, it's it's really fun, and I, like I say, I I recommend Crave for the for the, all the previous reasons that I gave. Let's uh, do it like a B segment, and let's fire up uh, the video corner, Joel. Okay, here we go, Ryan's Woo. Video Corner! Video, it's the only way to get what you want to watch when you want to watch it. Action, adventure, horror, comedy, drama, suspense, romance, great entertainment, always a great value. So, when I put that little jingle together, um, it was four years ago, and those the, the, the video promo mixed with the dinosaurs dying off from the asteroid was my comment on what's happened to home video, because I'm still one of those guys. I still, over here to my left, I got my library that is well-preserved. I still want a physical copy of everything. I'm, I'm a total antiquated dinosaur now compared to what's going on in the world but i but at the same time i i i treasure that i feel like uh some of that's being lost or is lost it's hard to say i'm interested in kind of what your take is because i we're we're beyond we're well beyond now a quantum shift from even when we added the dinosaurs to the video jingle uh the whole world is different from even when dangerous days comes out which didn't seem like ancient history to me um, it, it feels like we're, and uh, these things I think I value actually. So I think you do have to kind of accept things for what they are, but we're in the era of the, the after show, the talk back, the, the sort of, um, more, like you say, you approached, uh, your interviews, like you're a fan, but I, I think you also approach them not only like you're a fan, there's more, much, much more to them than that, than something that just worships the thing. Um, and I lament sort of the loss of the journalistic integrity, the term I used earlier, of these things. I, I enjoy reveling at the, the fan trough as much as anybody. I'm excited to see Howard the Doc and, you know, stuff that are more along those lines that are that celebrate the sort of goofiness of 
of fandom, but I feel like the resources aren't there. As a matter of fact, I'll tell, I don't know that this happened, but it really felt like just some executive one day said, was sitting in a room, an office someplace at a conference table and said, does, do we know, does anybody watch these extra features on these things that we're, you know, shelling out this money for? And I feel like no one knew the answer, and they went to the, all their people who pulled and figure out these things and realized it's not. It's not enough people. It's not a worthy investment, really, not from a commercial standpoint. And I feel like we kind of lost it. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I don't want to end on a bum note, but... Give me some hope, I guess. I know you're tied into it more than me, and you probably think about it a little bit more than me because you're taking the jobs that, as they come along that are sort of different these days. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, I like to think it's, it's all cyclical and that we'll, we'll get back there at some point to where people are interested in this type of content. I think they are because, look, um, around the time that the Blade Runner set came out, it was 2007, and shortly after that, or around that time is when the economy tanked. Right. Like that's when just everything just yeah. collapsed. So with that, um, people were spending less of their disposable income on DVDs. And, and, and not only that, not only DVDs, but we were dealing with a format war between Blu-ray and HD DVD. So they were uncertain about their high def future. So they didn't want to like invest in a library of one of those and the other one would win and they would, you know, have all these obsolete discs. So there was a lot of confusion and and uncertainty and then with, with the formats and in the economy and also the fact, I think people are just kind of like, you know what, I've built a nice little home library with these really nice, affordable DVDs that have tons of extras. And I've seen a bajillion different ways of how movies are made. And there's a commonality to it. You know, it's like, they write the script, they cast, they go to set. It's like they've seen, they've seen that, that the commonality of that so many times. And that's why I, never, I rarely focus on that. I structure it that way, but I try to focus on what made this different. What were the challenges? Not what was so great about it. It's like, what was hard about this? Like, I, that's where I think my stuff is, can be more interesting when it's, a good, when it's a good story. But a lot of the stuff that went out there, a lot of the content was not that. It, it really was more promotional. And there were, you know, like, you know, maybe like five or 10 producers out there that I think were really trying to go for something special. And then a lot of uh, what the studios were just happy with, um, again, at the time, it's changed since then, but they were happy with, look, we've got stuff on the shelf already. Why waste money? Let's just pull off these promotional things we've had for years and throw them on the disc, boom, bullet points, you know, on, on the packaging. And I get it because like they're in the business to make money. That's one thing that fans have to understand that the studios are not doing this for charity. They're, they're in it to make money. That's why they spent the money to make the movie in the first place. So the, the, the discs are, are a byproduct of that, you know, need to make money to pay people a, a living wage at the studio. So all of that said, it just got to a point where I thought, or where I felt like there just wasn't enough financial stability and support from the marketplace to warrant these really potentially expensive projects where you were, where where you weren't just making elaborate documentaries where you interview tons of people and you're having to transfer old footage that hasn't seen the light of day in 20 or 30 years. And then on top of that, you're doing director's cuts and special editions that need new visual effects. And it's like, that stuff's expensive and it adds up. And it's like, there was a beautiful like golden age of home video where we got to enjoy those, you know, not just making them, but, but as fans to watch, you know? Um, And so it was just kind of like, I really feel like people think, oh, there was just like this kind of Machiavellian plot to screw us over. Like, no, it just, 
it just, there was a wave. We, a lot of us rode the wave very well and had a, and had a really great ride. And then things shifted and, and now they're kind of shifting again with streaming and they have been for like a few years now. But when you look at something like, um, like the, the various making ofs on Disney plus between like Mandalorian and Marvel and things like that, it's Joel, just like, Joel brings those up all the time on the show. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, those, those are great. And it's sort of like, you know, they're definitely more mainstream. They're not as, as like, you know, niche as maybe some of the, some of the home video things were, but um, but they're, they're handsomely produced. They're really well-made. And, and they, I was, I was really blown away by this last um, gallery episode of Mandalorian season two finale, because they started talking about deep fake and blockchain and the ethics of video and audio manipulation. And it's like, this is Disney, you know? And it's like, you would never expect that. I, I thought it was brilliant that they did that. So um, yeah, big fan of what they've been doing. Uh, and, and I hope that continues to get people interested in the process, not just the process, but the potential of the process, because that's changing too. The way films are being made is changing on a daily basis. The way they're shown is, is changing on a daily basis. It's kind of like, this is an evolving beast. And there's, there's so many different ways to document it that we're just barely even scratching the surface on. So I hope that we'll get back to a place where it becomes like must see TV again. You know, yeah. Um, right now, I feel like it's fans and some of the curious mainstream kind of like Fairweather fans, but it's not like the frenzy that it was at the height of DVD, where like everyone had to have DVD. It was like pop culture, you know, appointment television thing. So, um, so yeah, look, it's 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 an ongoing cycle, and right now we're in a in a transitional phase, and we'll see where it ends up. And and that's not just for behind the scenes content; it's the, it's the actual content, it's the movies, the TV, yeah. the series. All that stuff is just evolving to a point where it's like, what is a movie anymore? You know, I mean, I know um, that's been debated quite a bit recently, especially because the streamers are just are, are just making so much untold sums of money, you know, because they're, they're, they're producing untold sums of like product. And it's just obviously it's pe- people are watching the, the, the shows, you know, obviously they're watching them because they wouldn't be making them if they weren't making money. So you have to ask yourself, well, what what do people want to see when it comes to behind the scenes content? And that's kind of where I'm still I'm still sort of like you know what, if a job comes up, happy to take it. Got to pay the bills. I'll do it. I but what the big picture is, I don't know. It's just like I'm still I'm still trying to see what that next wave is going to be. You have any sense of what's next for you? Any chance we're going to see that that 150 million dollar Philip K. Dick adaptation? I'd like to see that. Well, uh, it's well, yeah, you know. Um, there's, there's, there's been some new, uh, what would that we could just write you a check from me and show Joel Ryan. I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, I love that Coppola is going to spend a hundred million dollars of his own, of his own money on, uh, on his, on, on his, is it, it's not Metropolis, it's Megapolis. I, I forgot the title of it already. Um, yeah. Megapolis. That's it. Megapolis. Um, but I love that, you know, he's a player, man. Like that guy, or he's a, he's a baller, I think is the phrase. Um, it, like just the fact that he spent his own money on so many of his films and he continues to try to do it. I love that. Um, uh, but in terms of, uh, that Philip Dick project, there is, there is some traction on it recently. Um, and there's been discussions about how to do it maybe differently, uh, in terms of now, again, in, in the kind of like the limited series world that we're in oh, sure. you know, maybe it's maybe it's not a feature maybe it's a series but these are all things that i, I hope um yield something because there's been much more talk about it lately than in the last few years and um and again i think it's that hunger for content you know and it's like when you see people just like 
you know, like they're on social media and they're just, you know, going on and on and on about any new show that hits, you know, the, the streamers. And you're like, I don't have time to watch one of these things. And somehow these people are watching everything. And I feel so, you know, left out. So I say, well, I, I figure like, well, let's just focus on making it and the watching. I'll leave it to somebody else because I, I can't keep up, you know? <laughs> so that's why, that's why, again, I say it's like, I'm like monitoring this new world and how it's developing because I still, it's still developing and I don't know where it's going to end up with again, with COVID is sort of like it, am I going to go out to see Dune, you know, because I want to see it on, on the biggest screen possible. Yeah. And the review, the, the reviews are mostly pretty good. I'm like, do I, do I risk it? And it's like, well, the risk has changed. You know, it, it was really bad. Then, then we had a, we had those great three weeks in June that were, we thought it was oh. over and now, and now we're back. <laughs> so wonderful. You know? yeah. 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 So it's like, it's like that, that is affecting everything. You know, mm-hmm. um, the way I go to set to, to capture behind the scenes stuff is change has changed. It's like, I've, I've done two I've done three uh, behind the scenes jobs in the, in the COVID era. And, you know, it's not at all like it was in terms of having that intimacy of like, let me put a camera in your face and start shooting. It's like, you, you know, we, there are rules and you have to kind of measure it out in terms of how you approach people, how you capture things. And I'm about to leave soon for a, a big international job. And I'm part of me. I'm super excited to like, you know, go to other parts of the world that I've never been to. Um, but another part of me is like, what is that going to be like? You know, I mean, what what kind of like safety precautions am I going to have to take so I don't bring that home with me? So again it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of hesitation but i still think the the enthusiasm is there it's just how does that line up with reality and reality is being very unwieldy these days you know it's like it's very it's a very slippery world around well yeah. one of the things that i was saying to ryan uh we were when we were just texting back and forth a couple hours ago before we we uh we came on our computers was uh you know it's no small thing that you're that you are still out there making it and making things creating and, um, and, and doing it at a, at, at a tricky time. Uh, so that, that's not for nothing. And I, I just want to just commend you for that, for the, for the continuing, for the continuing hustle and, the, you know, and um, yeah, as, as you know, we, 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 we try not to get into the weeds too much in the, how these things get made and everything, but we do always try to make sure to, to uh, remind our, our listeners uh, that, uh, that, that it takes a lot to get something made. And, um, and to the people that are out there that are, you know, doing it and the hundreds of people that it takes to, to make, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, for a, a 17 or 20 minute film, like Love Bite, you had probably what, you know, how many people on set? 60? Six, did you say six, six zero? Yeah. More like. <laughs> no, no. I didn't, I didn't have six zero on Crave. That was a <laughs> okay. um, no, I, I say we probably had a dozen at our, right. at our, at our bulkiest. Uh, uh, you know, on, yeah. So then on set and then you, and then post-production, you yeah. had people who had to get involved with post-production, you had people in pre-production. Uh, uh, yeah so i mean um it, it takes you know, like you know like i said earlier it takes a lot of people to to make these things so i just uh, i wanted to just uh, make sure to commend you for for sticking to it and sticking out there and keep and to ask you to keep creating um whether it's whether it's documentary stuff or original stuff it's uh it's it's just been a real pleasure to have you on and i can't thank you enough 
Well, thank, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. It means yeah, a lot. I'm going to let Ryan gush now, but as we well, as we that up. says it all. I mean, it, we 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 got a little bit of the essence of of what you've been up to and what you've contributed to film culture and and uh, what you know your own particular voice and your own projects. So I try not to be too worshipful of the people that I really, really admire. But Charles is really, I mean, we started off the alien shows with him. I didn't plan on doing that, but I, I just wanted people, I want people to see those things. If they're coming to us for their alien content, huzzah, I don't want them to, you know, please tune in next week. But, but you really got to see, <laughs> you got to see the beast within and you got to see maximum firepower. You really should see those things. It's, it, it, it just, jam-packed full of incredible stories and unique and interesting perspectives and it's put together with so much care and love and yet there's this there's a wisdom and it's not objectivity but it's there's like any great filmmaker man there's this there, you're you have an outsider's perspective on the stuff and the way you assemble stuff the stories that you choose to share with us and your just sense of what is going to be interesting and what what should be told is is remarkable so i know that that's going to cross over you can already see it in your in your feature work and your narrative work so I'm, I'm definitely excited for what comes next and i'm honored to have you here no question well thank you ryan it was, it was very kind of you say i really appreciate you saying that and um it's like i don't know what, i don't know what else i would do <laughs> to be honest it's like you know it's, it's like this is all i've ever wanted to do since i was seven years old and saw jaws in the theater i was like i'm yeah i'm you know this is all I want to do. It's all I can do. It's all I know how to do. But I hope I get to keep doing it for a while. Living the dream. Is That's that a awesome. replica? Or is that an authentic Jaws barrel behind you there? That is an authentic Jaws barrel. It's, oh, uh, it's, I was it's, afraid it's, you were going to say that. It's, I it's, see it's, it back there going. I... Yeah, it's production used. It's not screen used. So like there, there. Oh. It's not. It's not the A list. It is the B list. But it's still it's, it's, it's from. It's yeah. from the production. And I. It's signed by Richard Dreyfuss and Carl Gottlieb and some oh, of the other yeah. crew members. So yeah. We, we will oh, we will that, accept you then based on that. That's okay. That is that is awesome. All right. Uh, once once again, thank you to Michael Klug, uh, friend, big friend of the show, who is, uh, as our listeners know, have has been on many many times for helping to put us in touch. Uh, and once again, uh, thank you, Charles De Lazarica, for coming on. There you go to uh, the movie show. I said it with oomph this time with yeah. you. Uh, so all right. Um, and uh, until. Uh, and that's going to do it. Uh, and and uh, so once again, thank you, Ryan. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll be back. We'll be back in a week. Who knows what we'll be talking about? Who knows? We uh, we would love to tease something, but uh, Ryan and I haven't had that conversation yet. So uh, if you have anything to um, that you want to share with us or any uh, questions or comments, reach out to us at Ask Joel and Ryan on Twitter and Instagram. Ask Joel and Ryan at. Uh, at the movie show with uh, no sorry ask joel and ryan at gmail.com and the movie show with joel and ryan page on facebook uh oh yeah and tiktok we're on ask at joel and ryan on tiktok so come get us on your uh come get your 30 seconds of tiktok joy i guess um all right thank you again so much and we'll see you next week yeah. bye now everybody thank you for listening to the movie show with joel and ryan Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now... 
Here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out. <laughs>